0: From executive producer Isaac Saul, this is Tangle. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Tangle Podcast, a place we get views from across the political spectrum, some independent thinking, and a little bit of my take. I'm your host, Isaac Saul, and we have a special edition for you today. We are going to do an international news roundup. This is something we do occasionally when we feel like there are a bunch of international stories we haven't gotten a chance to touch on, and today is one of those days. Before we jump in, though, as always, we'll start off with some quick hits from right here in the U.S. First up, the Education Department has opened a civil rights probe into Harvard's legacy admissions practice, examining whether it racially discriminates by prioritizing the children of alumni and donors. Number two, a federal judge in California blocked President Biden's newest immigration rule, which limited who can seek asylum at the border. The rule allowed the federal government to quickly deport asylum seekers who had not sought out protections and been rejected in the countries they passed through. Number three, Dwayne The Rock Johnson donated a seven-figure sum to the Screen Actors Guild American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, the actors' union currently on strike in Hollywood. Number four, UPS says it reached a tentative five-year deal with 340,000 union members to avoid a strike. The agreement increases starting wages for part-time workers who comprise over half of all UPS workers from $16.20 per hour to $21 per hour. Number five, President Biden's son, Hunter, will appear before a court on Wednesday to plead guilty to tax charges and avoid a gun charge. The plea agreement still needs to be approved by a judge. That massive protest in Israel igniting as Israeli lawmakers approve a key part of a divisive plan to overhaul the country's judicial system. Israeli media says that hundreds of thousands of Israelis rallied against the move as lawmakers who opposed the bill stormed out of the chamber before the vote chanting shame leaving it to pass with unanimous approval. Russia is continuing its assault on the Ukrainian port city of Odessa. Overnight, at least two people were injured in a strike on a grain terminal. The attack also destroyed a large amount of food stored there. And it marks Moscow's fourth consecutive day of attacks on the port cities in Ukraine. And the extreme weather is also wreaking havoc across the globe. Urgent evacuations are underway in Greece as wildfires rage just outside Athens. A heat wave is sweeping the region with today's highs expected to top 100 degrees. Since we are a daily newsletter focused on U.S. issues and can't go deep on every single topic out there, we sometimes miss important things happening in the rest of the world. So today we thought it'd be a good idea to mix it up. We're going to use this edition to do a brief roundup of a few of the biggest stories from across the globe that we haven't had a chance to cover. Since we're hitting multiple topics, this edition will not include the in-depth coverage or commentary from the right and the left we provide in our typical podcast, but we've included some links in the episode description in each roundup that you can click to learn more if you're interested. And if you want us to give one story more expanded coverage, don't hesitate to let us know. You can email me, isaac, I-S-A-A-C, as always, when there is a strong interest from readers, we try to listen. With that in mind, please let us know what you think of the roundup. We hope it's helpful in giving you a condensed but informative look at current world affairs. In Israel, street protests are ongoing after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu helped push through a judicial overhaul plan that would weaken the Supreme Court. The vote was boycotted by the opposition and passed Parliament 64-0 to 0 out of 120 potential votes. Before passage, Israel's Supreme Court was able to nullify a government decision it found quote, unreasonable in the extreme, a concept many right-wing lawmakers viewed as too nebulous. The bill had previously included a measure to allow the Knesset, Israel's legislative body, to overrule Supreme Court decisions by a simple majority, but that part of the proposed overhaul was dropped. Currently, the Supreme Court is selected by a panel of three Supreme Court judges, two lawyers, two cabinet ministers, and two members of the Knesset. Netanyahu and his coalition have also pushed a bill that would increase the number of Knesset seats on the panel, giving Knesset members a majority in picking judges. Those proposed reforms, which could change, will be voted on in the fall. They are considered even more controversial by Netanyahu's opposition than the bill that passed on Monday. Tens of thousands of Israelis have been protesting the reforms for months. Thousands of military reservists, union leaders, and medical professionals have threatened work stoppages if the legislation goes through. Now they face a decisive moment. The Wall Street Journal has more on this story, and there's a link in today's episode description. While Russian drones attacked grain storage infrastructure in Ukrainian ports, Russian authorities accused Ukraine of launching a drone strike of its own in Moscow. Just days after Russia pulled out of the grain deal that allowed the continued export of grain, a depot was destroyed in the Black Sea port city of Odessa. Then, Russian drones attacked Ukrainian ports on the Danube River just across from Romania, a NATO member. The attacks on the Danube were described as the closest to Romanian territory since the war began. Russia had previously suspended targeting of port locations when the deal to move grain freely was put in place. Officials said more than 60,000 tons of grain were destroyed in the past week. At the same time, the global price of grain has risen by 8% already. Meanwhile, Russian authorities said a drone attack on Moscow early Monday resulted in one aircraft falling from the sky near the Ministry of Defense's headquarters. No casualties were recorded after two of the drones struck non-residential buildings in Moscow. Media reports suggested that one of the drones fell onto a highway near a Moscow city center, shattering shop windows and damaging the roof near the Defense Ministry building. A Ukrainian drone also struck an ammunition depot in the Russian annexed Crimea, which stopped traffic on a major highway. The Associated Press has the story of the drones in Moscow, while the BBC has the attacks on the Grain Depot. There are links to those in today's episode description. In Sudan, a conflict is fueling an escalated humanitarian crisis. The numbers are staggering. 3.1 million people have been displaced in Sudan, 1.4 million of whom remain in the country, while an estimated 750,000 have fled into neighboring nations in Africa. About a third of Sudan's population of 16 million already relied on some form of assistance before fighting broke out, and more food and medical supply shortages are expected. The World Food Program estimates that 20,000 people have fled into Chad alone this past week. We can see that they have suffered, many lost family members, and we don't even dare ask them where are the men. The answer from the mothers is often that they were killed, WFP Chad County Director Pierre Hanarat said in a call with journalists so you just see many women and many children. According to WFP, one in ten displaced Sudanese children is malnourished. The region of Darfur is still recovering from the genocide of the 2010s, and the capital of Khartoum has been described by residents as a living hell. The conflict stretches back to April 15th, when fighting erupted between Sudanese armed forces led by General Abdel-Fattah al-Baran and the Rapid Support Forces, a powerful military group led by General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, better known as hameti The competing militaries are a legacy of former dictator Omar al-Bashir's fracturing of the nation's security apparatus as part of his coup-proofing strategy, which failed when al-Bashir was ousted by the military following mass protests in 2019. Albaran and Hameti shared power with civilian leaders in a traditional government meant to democratize Sudan, but the two teamed up to push out the civilian leaders in 2021. Since then, Albaran and Hameti maintained an unsteady partnership, and amid unrest, had said that they planned to oversee the transfer of power to a democratic government and to integrate the RSF and the ASF. The process failed, and eventually the two generals went to war, a foreseeable outcome that was largely ignored by the international community. Al Jazeera has a timeline on the conflict, and there's a link to it in today's episode description. The Mediterranean region of southern Europe and northern Africa is engulfed in a prolonged heat wave, with temperatures in Spain, Greece, and Italy reaching 104 degrees. Italy has experienced high temperatures in Sardinia of up to 47 degrees Celsius, that's 118 degrees Fahrenheit, which it is expected to surpass in the coming weeks. The Greek islands of Corfu and Rhodes have endured wildfires for about a week, resulting in the evacuation of 19,000 people from Rhodes, the largest evacuation in the country's history. In Algeria, 30 have already died from wildfires, while 1,500 more have been evacuated. Croatia, Serbia, Kosovo, Bosnia, and Spain have been experiencing sweltering heat and wildfires. The European Center for Mid-Range Weather Forecasts has said that the heat wave is the result of a heat dome over the region. A high-pressure circulation of the atmosphere over a large area that acts like a lid to trap heat in place. The area of high pressure has resulted from two anti-cyclones which moved heat from the Sahara across the Northern Africa and into the Mediterranean. The current conditions are reminiscent of the 2022 European heat waves that killed an estimated 62,000 people. CNBC has more on the heat and CBS News has more on the wildfires. In May, a series of local and regional elections in Spain resulted in losses for the left-wing governing coalition. That coalition was led by Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez and the Socialist Workers' Party. The conservative movement gained ground through the Popular Party, led by Alberto Núñez Fejo, and the far-right Vox Party, led by Santiago Abasca. Sanchez, who has earned a reputation as a political gambler, decided to call for a snap vote a national re-election of the legislature and parliamentary democratic systems that occurs immediately ahead of a scheduled national election. In the parliamentary system, a government can only be formed by a party with a majority of the seats in parliament or by a coalition of parties whose votes total a majority. Pundits expected the populist party in Vox to win the 176 seats required to form a majority, but in a surprise result, earned 169. Despite the popular party winning a 136-seat plurality, the Vox party won only 33 seats, down from 52. The election has been widely cast as a repudiation of far-right nationalism in Spain and perhaps assigned to other conservative movements in Europe. The Vox party has been vocal in its messages of contempt for gay marriage, push to restrict abortion access, denial of climate change, and ambitions to centralize government power— by rejecting Catalan independence and regional police control in autonomous regions within Spain. Though the conservative coalition failed to win a majority, it remains unclear how Sanchez and the Socialist Workers' Party, with its 122 seats, will form a majority coalition required to govern. Left-wing party Sumar gained 31 votes, but Sanchez will likely need to form agreements with nationalist parties in Catalonia and the Basque region to reach a majority. In the meantime, the Spanish government is in a deadlock that may not be decided until the regularly scheduled election in December. CNN has more and there's a link to it in today's episode description. Today's podcast is sponsored by Arnold Ventures, a philanthropy dedicated to improving the lives of Americans through evidence-based policy solutions. As part of their efforts, they also support journalism throughout the United States, including outlets like the Texas Tribune, ProPublica, and the Institute for Nonprofit News, among others. To learn more about their work, go to arnoldventures.org. That's arnoldventures.org. The FIFA Women's World Cup kicked off this past week, co-hosted by Australia and New Zealand. The month long tournament has in recent decades been the largest women's sporting event in the world and has been dominated by the success of the United States national team. So far, the event has pushed its popularity to new heights. 1.3 million tickets have already been sold, and the host nations expect the final number to surpass 1.5 million, which, if reached, would be a record. Further, the tournament has expanded from 24 to 32 teams, while funding for the event has tripled from 40 million in 2019 to 152 million this year. The trend of American dominance, however, is in jeopardy. While the United States scored a convincing 3-0 victory over Vietnam in its opening round, other championship hopefuls dazzled. Japan notched a 5-0 victory over Zambia. Brazil scored a 4-0 win over Panama. And Germany dominated Morocco in its 6-0 first-round blowout. Elsewhere in the standings, however, the theme of the tournament has been parody. Underdogs are challenging, drawing, and sometimes even defeating heavy favorites, including host nation New Zealand's opening day victory over Sweden. Then, to kick off the second round, New Zealand was upset by the Philippines. All the action has made the first round of this year's tournament one of the most captivating in recent memory. As with last year's Men's World Cup, this year's tournament had not yet started before its first controversy. Underpayments and accusations of wage theft have been issues in the women's game in the past, and this year FIFA is reportedly reneging on its commitment to ensure each athlete is compensated at a minimum of $30,000 for their participation. Just Women's Sports has a breakdown of the competition, and the New Zealand Herald has an editorial on the crowd-pleasing start. In Ecuador, the mayor of the third-largest city, Manta, was slain Sunday in a shooting that killed one other person and wounded four more including two suspected attackers, officials said. The mayor, Agustín Triago, was a 38-year-old lawyer who belonged to the local Better City movement and was recently re-elected to a term that began in May. Manta has become a key city for exporting drugs in the past decade, during which Ecuador has seen a steep increase in crime, including a recent surge of armed attacks, kidnappings, robberies, and extortion. Elsewhere in the country, over 90 prison guards in five different prisons are being held hostage. Five had died in the recent violence in prison, and hundreds of inmates have died in Ecuadorian prisons in recent years. The violence is part of a concerning trend in the South American country. Inequality and civil unrest has increased under current President Guillermo Lasso, with the president being accused of corruption, including ties to organized crime, tax evasion, and corruption in the energy industry. Lasso has never held an approval rating over 20% and is widely seen in the country as serving corporate interests over the well being of the Ecuadorian people. In May, Lasso was impeached by the National Assembly. In June, he dissolved the Assembly and called for a snap election, then announced he would not run in that election, which is set to take place in August. This summer's tumultuousness comes after a decade of debt defaults, which resulted in Lasso implementing policies of price controls, debt forgiveness, and increased investment in the oil and mining industries. These policies sparked a summer of protests last year, led by the nation's indigenous groups. It is too early to predict what the results of the upcoming election could be, though experts expect a rise of leftist populism and further violence. The Associated Press has the story, and there's a link to it in today's episode description. Meanwhile, a wave of deadly protests has hit Kenya, as citizens express their anger over tax hikes and unreasonable cost of living. At least 30 people have died in the protests, while opposition parties say they are filing charges against the ruling government for police atrocities. The protests started after the government, led by President William Ruto, signed unpopular tax hikes into law. Taxes on petroleum products, which caused a spike in the cost of transportation and living staples, were particularly unpopular. Ruto ran on a campaign dedicated to prioritizing the poor and entered office 10 months ago with a battered economy, soaring inflation, and a high debt burden. Shortly after entering office, he announced a pause on food subsidies and a focus on food production. He also eliminated subsidies for food and electricity, saying they were unsustainable. Then he proposed that taxes as a way to create domestic revenue and jobs. However, the cost of living has continued to rise. The protests are being led by Raila Odinga. Odinga ran against Ruto in August but lost and then rejected the results of the election, saying they were manipulated. CNN has more on the story. There's a link to it in today's episode description. India has decided to ban exports of non-Basmati rice to ensure sufficient domestic supply, which has sparked panic buying and stockpiling of rice in many communities around the world. The decision comes at a time when production scarcity is driving up the price of rice, which is only further increased by panic buying. In Canada, due to increased demand for all rice varieties, including high-grade Basmati rice that was not included in the export ban, stores that serve South Asian communities have implemented purchasing caps, India has taken the extraordinary step in an attempt to ensure its domestic supply and bring down prices, which have soared due to floods and drought in rice-producing regions. According to government data, the domestic price of non basmati rice has increased by almost 10% this month. In September of last year, a metric ton of non basmati rice in India would cost about $330 U.S. Today, it tops $450 U.S., India is second only to China in global rice exports, accounting for 23.5% of the global market. CBC has the story, and there's a link to it in today's episode description. On Monday, North Korea fired two short-range ballistic missiles into the sea in an apparent response to the arrival of a nuclear-propelled U.S. submarine, the USS Annapolis, at a South Korean military base. While the U.S. Indo-Pacific's command said the missile launch posed no threat to its personnel or allies, it also referred to the act as part of the destabilizing impact of North Korea's weapons program. In recent weeks, North Korea has increased the cadence of its weapons testing, while the U.S. military has built up assets in South Korea, including the arrival of the first nuclear-armed submarine since the 1980s. North Korea's defense minister attacked the move as potential grounds for the use of nuclear weapons, and the country conducted a series of ballistic and cruise missile tests shortly after the submarine's arrival. Further adding to tensions is the status of U.S. Army Private Travis King, who was detained in North Korea last week after entering the country from the south. The U.S. said it has started a conversation with North Korea about King, but little more is known about his condition. King is the first American detained in North Korea in nearly five years. CBS News has the story, and there's a link to it in today's episode description. Qin Gang, China's foreign minister and the country's highest-ranking diplomat, was ousted from his role on Tuesday after a month-long absence from public view. No explanation has been given for his removal. Qin was viewed as an ascendant figure in China's Communist Party and a close ally of President Xi Jinping, who reportedly handpicked him for the foreign minister role. Notably, Qin will be replaced by his predecessor, Wang Yi, a career diplomat who held the foreign minister position for about a decade before Qin's 6 months tenure. Qin was last seen in public on June 25th, one week after meeting with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and days after meeting with Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Andrei Rudenko. Shortly after, Qin disappeared from China's foreign affairs schedule and was subsequently absent from a high-profile meeting of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations in Indonesia and a gathering of representatives from BRICS countries in South Africa. China has cited health reasons for his absence but declined to share information. While the shakeup is unlikely to have any immediate impact on President Xi's rule, it could reflect poorly on his judgment within the party as he backed Chen chin for the foreign minister role over a number of more experienced candidates. Reuters has the story, and there's a link to it in today's episode description. And finally, on Monday, the cryptocurrency and digital ID project called WorldCoin was launched. The company is being led by Sam Altman, the head of OpenAI, which popularized ChatGPT. The product is being built to verify users' identification to help distinguish between real humans and computers while navigating the internet. Core to the product's implementation is an eye-scanning orb which must be used in person, but gives users a way to verify they are real human beings. Once a user is verified, they can access a cryptocurrency that is also called WorldCoin. This app will allow a user to make payments and transfers with the coin, as well as other digital assets. WorldCoin has already amassed two million users during its beta launch, and is aiming to begin operations in 35 cities across 20 countries. Because of regulatory issues, WorldCoin cryptocurrency is not currently available in the US and there are no timelines on when it might be. Critics have raised questions about WorldCoin's collection of biometric data and the privacy risks involved with collecting that data. Some have also said tying the project to a cryptocurrency effectively acts as a bribe, trading people's biometric data for access to the coin. Forbes has the story and there's a link to it in today's episode description. All right, everybody, that is it for International News Roundup. I hope you enjoyed it. I know that was a lot of information we just spit at you, but there's a lot to cover, as you can see, that we haven't gotten a chance to touch on in more than a sentence or two in the newsletter. So with that, we're going to jump into today's reader question. This one is from Sarah in Singapore, who said, for real, what is critical race theory? Why has it become so divisive in schools? What exactly is it that makes it controversial? Uh, First of all, hello to Singapore. Thank you for reading Tangle from across the world, fitting for today's international edition. Second, answering your question is a little difficult because like so many other things that have gone through the political meat grinder, critical race theory is now a catch-all term for a lot of different things depending on the user. I've heard critical race theory used to describe just about anything that touches race, racial tension, the justice system, or critical lenses for teaching American history. The actual definition of critical race theory is an academic movement that recognizes systemic racism in American society and examines how that racism impacts the law, institutions, and outcomes through its construction over time. In essence, it is the study of America, its history, and its law through a lens that prioritizes race. The movement began in the 1970s and was led by many niche academic heavyweights. What is controversial about CRT is that the body of work supports the argument that racism is still an everyday experience for people of color, while white supremacy maintains its power through systems of government and law. Advocates for teaching CRT argue that it helps privileged groups understand how they benefit from these systems, while critics say its teaching is inherently divisive and regularly assigns racial significance to innocuous concepts or outcomes. In particular, CRT has become controversial in the US because of the way some teachers have taught it in K through 12 schools, particularly among elementary and middle school aged children. Conservative activists like Christopher Rufo have shared lesson plans, firsthand accounts, and footage from classrooms where teachers try to teach ideas popularized by CRT that many Americans find deeply offensive or counterproductive. We've actually covered this issue a few times in the past, and we left a link in today's episode description to some of that coverage. All right, next up is our blind spot report. Once a week, we present the blind spot report from our partners at Ground News, an app that tells you the bias of news coverage and what stories people on each side are missing. This week, the right missed a story about a federal court ruling that Florida violated the Americans with Disabilities Act by institutionalizing disabled children. On the other side, the left missed a story about Hunter Biden's gallery selling his art to a Democratic donor who was then appointed to a prestigious committee. All right, and our numbers section today the number of cars that are on board a cargo ship that has caught fire off the coast of the Dutch island Ameland is 3,000. The length in minutes of evacuation orders in Japan after North Korea launched one of its most sophisticated missiles yet was 30. The number of confirmed deaths in the Mediterranean wildfires so far is 40. The estimated growth forecast for the global economy in 2023 is 3%, according to the International Monetary Fund. The number of developers who have joined a lawsuit against Apple, alleging its 30% app store fees are anti-competitive, is 1,500. The number of countries that have now abolished the death penalty worldwide after Ghana passed a new law prohibiting capital punishment is 124. And before we get to our Have a Nice Day story, a quick heads up. Can degrowth work? In our newest YouTube video, I sat down with Dave Gardner, the co-host of the Growth Busters podcast and the filmmaker behind the Growth Busters documentary. We talk about his far-reaching proposals for how we should reshape the world in a sustainable fashion and whether they are actually realistic. There's a link to that YouTube video in today's episode description, but you can also just go to Tangle News on YouTube to find it. All right, and last but not least, I have a nice day story. A paramedic has become one family's personal guardian angel. Six years ago, Christy Hadfield saved John Cunningham's life when he was having a heart attack. When he went into cardiac arrest, I remember being in the back of the ambulance and I was like, not today, John, not today, Hadfield recalled. She performed chest compressions, which helped sustain Cunningham, who was later revived at the hospital. Over the years, Hadfield stayed in touch with Cunningham through social media as she often does with former patients. That's when she discovered that John's daughter, Molly Jones, needed a kidney transplant. Cunningham again stepped up for the family, this time offering her own kidney. She said to me, listen, kid, I saved your dad and I'm going to save you too, Jones said. It was amazing. I felt like I was alive again. The difference is just unbelievable. Christy gave me back my life. Sunny Skies has the remarkable story and there's a link to it in today's episode description. All right, everybody, that is it for today's podcast. As always, if you want to support our work, don't hesitate to go to readtangle.com slash membership. And remember, we still got tickets available for our live event in Philadelphia on August 3rd. If you want more info, you can go to reedtango.com slash live. If you are in New Jersey, New York, D.C., Maryland, anywhere in Pennsylvania, or you feel like getting on a flight and coming to Philly for the event, it's a great place to visit. You should check out tickets, see if you're interested. We'll be right back here. Same time tomorrow. Have a good one. Peace.